Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cheryl Hooper was a devoted, loving mom, daughter, and friend to her family and all those that knew her. Tragically, she was murdered by her controlling and jealous husband in a premeditated act of the most savage violence. On Friday the 26th of January 2018, Andrew Jack Hooper committed the cowardly act of killing his wife. The act was witnessed by innocent members of the public who too have suffered greatly from the trauma of witnessing such a barbaric act. Andrew Hooper continued his controlling and cowardly behaviour by refusing to acknowledge his actions and forcing a young girl, traumatised by the incident, to give evidence at a Crown Court trial. I hope that Hooper spends the rest of his life reflecting on the devastation that he has caused. The impact of this crime will live forever in the hearts and minds of Cheryl's family. Not only have they lost a treasured loved one, but they have had to rebuild their lives as a consequence. We've all been overwhelmed by the bravery of Cheryl's family, and I hope that today's verdict provides them with a little relief from their pain. Hey there, lovely listeners. I wanted to share with you part one of three very special interviews with an incredibly inspiring, courageous and brave 17-year-old girl, Georgia Gabriel Hooper. Now, when Georgia was 14 years old, her mother Cheryl was shot dead in front of her on January the 26th, 2018. 
Cheryl's murder shocked not only the quiet community of Newport, but resonated across Shropshire and across the UK. It's even more horrific because Georgia was with her mum at the time, in the car when Andrew Hooper appeared late one night, armed with a shotgun. Georgia wants to ensure her mother's murder is not in vain, and she wants to help others understand coercive control and stalking and the child's perspective, which is often overlooked. Now, this is a very honest, real, and at times harrowing and heartbreaking conversation. But it's a very necessary conversation everyone needs to hear. This was a murder in slow motion, and we want everyone to understand the red flags and the warning signs of coercive control and stalking. This conversation may open up a lot of things for you, particularly if you've experienced domestic abuse as a child or in adulthood, and it may be triggering or upsetting, so listener discretion is advised. Georgia is also campaigning alongside me for the Register for Serial Domestic Abusers and Stalkers. She firmly believes that had this been in place, her mother Cheryl would still be alive today. And I totally agree with Georgia. Too often it's women and children who are terrorised, abused, harmed and killed. And we want to change this. We desperately want to change this. And we also need your help. So listen to the end of the interview about how you can help us to ensure that serial domestic abusers and stalkers are on the same register as sex offenders and terrorists. And so, without further ado, here's my interview with the amazing and inspiring Georgia Gabriel Hooper. Hi, Georgia. It's great to see you and great to speak with you. And thank you for coming on to Crime Analyst to talk to me. Will you introduce yourself to everyone, please? Uh, hi, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you've just said, you know, I'm Georgia. Um, I'm from Shropshire in England, so it's, you know, a small place, very rural. Um, I'm 17 and, uh, yeah, I'm a survivor of domestic abuse and hopefully uh, showing my experience will have some impact on some people. Absolutely. Well, you're a survivor and you're incredible. And I remember first meeting you in Wales at a domestic violence conference, standing up to domestic violence, which Rachel Williams hosted. And we were both speaking at that conference. And I think you spoke before me and I was blown away. Yeah, yeah that's right. I was blown away by what you had to say. Um, what you said about your mum, Cheryl, and I remember your mum's case. I remembered reading it in the papers at the time. And we didn't talk much at the conference because it was such a busy day, but we've been talking ever since, haven't we? Yeah, very much so. I mean, <laughs> you're very busy, um, you know, and I don't, I, I try not to command too much of your time, but um, yeah, we do talk quite a bit, don't we? We do. And we talk specifically about what we want to change because of what happened to your mum. And the register is a very important part of change and what you and I have been campaigning for. So I want to hear a little bit from you, first of all. And I know my listeners would really love to hear about you and your mum and about your relationship before we talk about what actually happened. So can you characterise your mum and tell us a little bit about her? Um, I mean... It's very easy for, you know, when, when someone has, you know, passed away, it's very easy to say, um, you know, oh, they're amazing, they were this, that and the other. And it's very generic and it's you know, something you hear a lot from, you know, when someone talks about their loved one. Um, but, you know, 
so I, I'm not going to be as jerk as that because, yeah, like I said, it is very easy to to then be quite, um, you know, oh, well, everyone says that. And it doesn't quite go in as much as, you know, as sort of specific things do. But, you know, my mum was incredibly generous. Um, you know, she was always given to charity. She was given to, I don't know how many charities, but it was too many. Um, you know, she was always going, oh, I've not got much money left now. Um, you know, and she bent over backwards. To, you know, primary school, she put me in private school. Um, and she bent over backwards to put me in there. There was times where... Um, she couldn't you know she could hardly afford to to pay bills really because of paying for school for me um because all she cared about was my education and um you know making sure that I had um you know my home life wasn't great so making sure that I had a, a greater education and you know a, a good as good of a start as I possibly could have really um given the circumstances that we were living in um you know and going back to the charity thing one of the charities she gave to um was uh, was it was a charity called Compassion, and we sponsored a child um, in Kenya. She was she's two years younger than me, and we used to send uh, twenty five pound a month, I think it was, um, and that paid for her to go to school, paid for her to have clothes, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. And um, unfortunately, you know, when my mum when my mum died, obviously, um, you know, I was concerned because I couldn't carry on those those donations, and you know, because that was so fun you know fundamental to them there was there, there were four fa- uh, children in the family um so there was quite a lot of children um for them to look after and they were you know they were incredibly poor um and you know this child had massive dreams i used to write her, write to her a lot um and it really did go uh, show just how much your money changed their lives um and you know doing what my mum would have wanted and I know 100% she would have wanted this at her funeral we had a donations plate and um, we raised over a thousand pounds that day um, and that was sent directly to their family and um, you know they've been able to build two houses rent them out all the children get education food water everything they could dream of Um, you know they're now some of the wealthiest people in their in their town Um, so it's really it's really special to see the impact that my mum has had because I would never have been able to give them that money if my mum hadn't decided to sponsor her, um, you know, so, uh, and everyone I've ever spoken to really, that I've never really heard a bad word said about my mum. I mean, I know people don't tend to talk people down to you, but even so, you know, um, just to see the outpouring of grief from my time, really, you know, she's very well known, um, just goes to show just sort of, you know, what a good person she was. And when I've seen pictures of you and your mum together, because you shared quite a few pictures with me, the smiles on both your faces, you just light up the room. And I can see from her this light that resonated. So tell, tell me a little bit about her. It sounds like she had great compassion, for example, that she left a legacy of wanting to help. She would make she wanted to make sure that you had a great education, but things weren't always easy, were they? And she put you first, it sounds like, and she was smart, intelligent, great fun. Just tell us a little bit about her characteristics of how she was when she was with you and with her friends, because she was bubbly, wasn't she? Oh, crikey. Uh, she was certainly the loudest person in the room. I'll, I'll give her that. Um, you know, she was quite, uh, quite well known for her laugh because it was such a cackle and you like, you would, you could just recognize it anywhere. Um, we were away at a, at a Christian festival one time and we couldn't find, me and my friends had gone off and we weren't entirely sure where our parents were because they'd gone to sort of another friend's tent. And then I just heard this laugh from, you know, a hundred yards away near enough and it was, 
we found where the tent was pretty quickly just because we could hear my mum laughing um you know so she was very very well known for a laugh but very you know very chatty it runs in my family to be incredibly chatty you can't shut us up you can't get a word in edgeways as you'll probably find doing this um you know it's just yeah we're all incredibly chatty my mum just was always wanting to help people she'd never say no um that was also her downfall she could never say no to people um you know and often she'd push herself too hard um and too far uh you know and she was incredibly forgiving too that was that was the other thing that was her other downfall you know she was incredibly forgiving and um you know forgave too much um at times but yeah she was an incredibly compassionate person um funny her her, her sarcasm was you know very british let's put it that way but um yeah she, and she taught me that from quite a young age so i was quite used to getting getting sarcastic remarks one of which was uh, I, I was having a, t- a strop once and um my stepsister said to me why don't you just go and see your friends because my mum was all about going out and uh, my mum just turned around without even thinking and went she doesn't have any that's why and um you know just so quick quick witted and <laughs> we all just ended up in hysterics it certainly snapped me out of my uh out of my strop straight away just uh just how funny she was really and just very dry just quite very quick witted very on the ball so um yeah but there was always never a dull moment <laughs> certainly so i love that and what about your dad because you didn't really have much to do with your dad. Can you say a little bit about that, about who he was and why you decided, why, well, why you don't have any contact with him now? Um, well, so, I mean, my parents met before I was born. They got married before I was born. Um, you know, they'd been together for, for quite a number of years. Um, and he, he sort of started going downhill um, at a certain point. He himself didn't have particularly the best childhood with his father. Um, and, you know, that sort of reflected in his behaviour as he got older. You know, he he did gamble a lot. Um, you know, there's, there isn't really a problem with gambling. I don't have a problem with anyone gambling, but his he took it too far and it, it became an addiction, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, he was, he was losing more than he was making. Um, and, you know, that, that obviously led to massive problems with, within the relationship. Um, he took some money of mine when I was a baby and my savings that my mum had been putting together. And, uh, you know, he said he'd return them and he never did um, because he, he lost it all. Um, he also had really bad alcohol issues Um and you know he would drink while driving um you know never mind drink and driving um you know so it just he his behavior just um you know he became very distant he wasn't really interested in me um he was just more interested in going to the pub and drinking with his friends and just um you know drinking his life away really and gambling his life away and and their relationship broke down eventually uh well when i was two um and you know, he he was interested in seeing me for, you know, a period of time. However, um, you know, once he'd sort of got, um, he had to have supervised contact at first, but, um, you know, he was allowed to take me on his own after. Um, and once he sort of was allowed to have that contact and allowed to have me, um, and it wasn't supervised contact, it sort of dwindled. Um, you know, he quite often he he wouldn't show up or he'd cancel last minute and, 
you know as a as a three four five year old child it it it's quite difficult to understand why he wouldn't turn up and why he wouldn't want to see see me you know um so there there would be periods of time he was meant to see me every the weekend but um and I'd never say over i i wasn't I wasn't comfortable staying over but um he'd see me both days and um you know there'd be periods of time where I wouldn't see him for six weeks or so because he just wouldn't wouldn't show up um you know unfortunately uh, and yeah it just he never really provided for me the way a father should. Um, and I sort of realised um, probably about five or six years ago that actually I was better off just not seeing him full stop as it was more draining and more exhausting. Um, I, th- I think the real downfall for him was um, he, I mean, he's engaged now, he's going to get married this year, but um, his partner who he's with now, he met her uh, probably when I was about five or six, uh, possibly a bit older. And, you know, I think she was really the the main downfall, unfortunately. Um, she encouraged his behaviours um, and, you know, it, it just, he's, he's now a lot worse than he, he was before. And, you know, he, his priorities aren't the same as they were, um, you know, 10 years ago, let's put it that way. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So it sounds like your mom really was your rock, always there, always consistent, always putting you first. Um, was a fantastic mother and role model in your life. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, I've got a small family anyway. Um, you know, if you exclude my dad's side, I've got just my mum. I have my mum, my nan, and my granddad, um, and my uncle and my cousin, and that's all I had really. So I'm quite used to having, you know, small, tight, tight knit. And, you know, I'm very lucky to have an Alan Grand. My uncle lives in Wales, so he, you know, he lives he lives a fair, fair way away. Um, you know, it's only an hour or so, but um, not for regular contact, really. Yeah. So what happened after your dad sort of exited your life? Was that, did, was your mum seeing someone else and or before Andrew Hooper? Uh, yeah. So um, at the time where I was sort of having contact with my dad, this is when I was still seeing him. Um, you know, she she had another partner at this point. Uh, anyway, I was probably about three or four when they met. I, I think I, I, I can't really remember. Um, but they were together for, for a couple of years um, and we, we lived together. Um, but he sort of uh, he he lived up uh, up north in Leeds or around that area um and he moved down to to us but he refused to move into my mum's property um he you know sort of said you need to sell the house and buy another house with me um which you know effectively as as you and I both know um that's just a way of um you know tying her down and, and making it you know more difficult for her to then to then leave and then choose to exit the relationship because she was tied down with money um you know so 
that was sort of the that was the first um downfall in that situation really um and then over the years he he got progressively worse and he was unfortunately very physically abusive um but towards myself rather than my mum um but he knew that because um you know I was everything to my mum really and he knew that he could get at her that way um he knew that she wouldn't really care if, if, you know, if the violence was directed at her because at least I was okay. Um, but yeah, he would, he would direct that violence at me. Um, and you know, it, it did have a lot of repercussions in the sense of, um, you know, it, it taught me to be quite hard, hard faced. Um, you know, I, I was very hard faced growing up, you know, nothing. I, if, if I was ever threatened to get my bum smacked, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run away and do as I was told. I'd just go, go on then, you know, because I was, it didn't bother me um, as such. I mean, as I've got older, I've grown out of that, but at that time it, it taught me, you know, bad values. Um, uh, yeah. And the, yeah, the, the violence is mostly directed at, at myself. Like I said, um, they, we did, we did move out. Uh, we went and live with my nan and granddad for, nearly a year I think um but it, that was only temporarily um and then we went back to to the other place um and lived back with him I mean fortunately it was a big house it was a five-bedroom house um you know detached massive house so we were quite lucky in the sense that we had that space away from each other um and you know we could kind of function without really seeing each other um however we did have three locks on the master bedroom door um, one at the top, one in the middle, one at the bottom, which, you know, looking back now, that is just absolutely absurd. Um, but when I, I was probably four or five when this happened, that is just, it, it, that's just normal, you know, that at that stage in life. And at that point, I, I, I didn't even question the fact that we were putting locks on the door. I just knew that I felt safer with them, um, you know, but it was, it was really difficult for my mum, especially having to explain to a, you know, four or five year old why they can't sleep in their own bedroom. Um, you know, all I, all I wanted was to be able to sleep in my own bedroom, um, not have to sleep in the, in the master bedroom with my mum and, you know, running out the house in the morning quickly and eating dinner at my aunt and granddad's, then coming home late at night and going straight to bed. Um, so it was a very, very difficult situation, but I mean, fortunately we managed to sell the house, um, eventually. And, you know, we did move out and escape that relationship. So what were the locks on the door for the three on the master bedroom? They were to keep you and your mum in or? To keep him out. <laughs> yeah. To, we had the we had the locks on the inside, um, so we could go to bed at night and lock ourselves in and feel safe, um, you know. And my mum was always trying to find out. Uh, she had a recording device that she sat um, keeping her bra, actually, funnily enough, um, just in case you know when he was around, so that if there was any sort of altercation of any kind, we could go to the police. Um, he put tacks on the drive, um, nails in our tires. Uh, my mum had a blowout on the motorway doing, you know, 70 um, in the outside lane. So she was very lucky not to crash. Um, you know, and we found out that that was through a nail that he'd put in our tyre. Um, we did report to the police uh, both the tax on the drive and the nail in the tyre. Um, however, uh, their response was, um, well, it's on his property. So therefore, it, because it's on his property, he can do what he likes. Um, whether that had intent, you know, even though that had, that action had intent to harm and it nearly did kill someone, um, then, you know, 
it, it didn't matter apparently because it was on his personal property um, and there was no, no, you know, nothing they could really do. That's outrageous. I mean, this this is where the context is missing of all the other behaviours that were going on and having three locks on a door to stop him getting in and you being fearful. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it and I always say, particularly children growing up in an environment where there is an abuser and there's fear in the room, it is so corrosive to a child's development, that that fear and just never knowing what's happening next and what's coming next. I think it's really important children know that they are victims too and that they're not just witnesses. And too often that's how police and other agencies treat children. And I know that growing up myself and what I've experienced, and oftentimes you're not seen as a person. And I think that, that in with what you described, there are multiple opportunities for the police to ask questions about everything that's going on, the totality. And I think this really set a the stage for when your mum meets Andrew Hooper, because it's not just about one relationship, it's actually about the story of your life and how things happen, of, of having a dad who puts gambling and his alcohol addiction first and how that must have felt for you because it's not easy for a child to know and understand and reason. You don't know all those reasons. You just don't feel loved and you don't see, you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard, you don't feel important. And then there's this next relationship where he's being in some ways worse. There's some physical abuse, but again, you're, ha- you're living in fear and you and your mum did nothing to warrant that level of behaviour. And I know you know that now, because that's another important thing. It takes a long time to work these things out, doesn't it? And it stays with us. It doesn't matter what age we are. Our stories stay with us when we experience abuse. And I'm glad that you and your mum got away safely in that situation. And I, I don't know what the time... Um, frame was here, Georgia, for when Andrew Hooper comes on the scene. What can you remember roughly what the timescales were and when your mum met him? Um, so yes, yeah, so my mum was with this previous partner from probably when I was about three till about five or six. Um, and then she met uh, Andrew. Uh, two weeks after my seventh birthday, actually, that was their first um, uh, official date, really, because um, they were set upon a blind date. My mum had never done it before. She It wasn't her thing. Um, but uh, funnily enough, actually, they both had the same divorce lawyer for their previous marriages. And um, they were both, you know, he wasn't, they weren't just clients. They were friends with him. Um, and he said, oh, y- let me just set you up with someone, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it worked, but um, it, it worked a little too well, really, <laughs> for my liking. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as we know, it went it went downhill afterwards. Um, but, yeah, it's very right what you say about um, about how sort of detrimental it is to, um, you know, your upbringing, really. Even now at, at 17 and with all the work I, I do, I mean, I've, I've been involved in the domestic abuse sector for two years now, really. And, it, you know, a little bit before that. Um, but, you know, it, it, even now I'm still learning things about what I went through when I was five, um, you know, and there were so many questions I had and it was so confusing for such an, a, a large amount of time. Um, and yeah, like I said, even now there's behaviors that I go, hold on a minute, really, that's not normal. Um, you know, and, and, lots of different things like that and it really does concern me um i mean this is a different topic but it really does concern me that i am only learning these things because of um 
coming into the domestic abuse sector. I never learned these at school. I never learned these from anyone else, but I learned them, you know, because of my mum dying, um, you know, and, and because of wanting to help and wanting to change other people's lives, um, you know, where it just baffles me that that's not just standard. Um, but yeah, so all the relationships were very close together and, and you know, everything... <laughs> I agree with everything you said, you know, it's very detrimental. You do feel very, um, you know, uh, left out really. And I spent a lot of my time very confused as to, to what was going on really and why no one wanted me. I mean, I found booklets and notepads from when, because my mum kept everything <laughs> of mine. I found notepads and, and little diaries and things that I had from when I was younger. And in them, it'd be like, why doesn't he, why don't they want me? Why don't they love me? What am I doing wrong? Um, you know, and it was, and then why doesn't mum want me? She's more interested in her new partner now. You know, what's going on? Because she was so desperate to make things work um, and so desperate to give me a good life that oftentimes she would kind of, not not once she was in the relationship with Andrew, but very much at the start, um, you know, because she was so, she, like I said, she wanted to make it work. She was just doing everything he sort of asked her to do um, because he wasn't physically violent. So this was a massive change for her. Um, you know, she had she she had domestic, you know, abusive relationships before I was even born. Um, so it really, they, they, it wasn't a new sequence of events for her. And um, so for him to not be physically violent, uh, like her other partners, was actually a massive change. Um, and she was like, oh, I've, I've, I've struck gold here. Um, you know, and, and she was quite, she was so desperate to be loved. And she said this all the way through the relationship, you know, very much, especially right at the end as well. She said, oh, I'm so desperate to be loved. Um, but no, you know, why is no, you know, why will no one love me? Because she tried so hard, yet she got nothing in return. And, you know, because she tried so hard, you know, she would put me on the back burner a bit and she'd put me to bed um, when he'd come over, he put, she put me to bed like two hours before my normal bedtime because he didn't want to see me. He wasn't interested in me. He didn't particularly like me. So because she wanted to please him, she put me to bed. Um, but then that obviously left me with so many different questions. Um, and for a period of time, feeling quite neglected really is the only answer to it. Um, you know, fortunately I had, I had my nan and granddad and, you know, they sort of explained it to me and then eventually things settled down and they were sort of okay between myself and my mum again. Um, but yeah, it certainly had a massive effect on me for, for quite a significant period of time. I can imagine. And I think what you said, first of all, when you were saying, well, at school, no one really taught me about this healthy relationships and what does it look like? And there are so many children growing up with an abuser in their home feeling exactly this, this conflicted, it's me, there's something wrong with me, I'm not loved, I'm not wanted, I'm always in trouble. And it's really hard for children to understand because they haven't got the wealth of wisdom that you have when you're much older. And I think that's why it's so important that we don't just teach children when they're age appropriate, the mechanics of sex, we actually should be teaching them about what's a healthy relationship. And I think it is still very conflicting for many, even when you're in adulthood, to change and unlearn the patterns that you've learned. And I think a lot of adult life is actually unlearning things that have been unhealthy and don't serve us very well. And I know that you're in the middle of that process and the work is the work. You have to do the work every day. And that's why you can talk so eloquently and help so many other people who are going through it and 
some who have even gone through it think that they've dealt with it as childhood survivors and probably haven't because a lot of people put this stuff in a box and never open that box again. And I'm sure some of our listeners, this will really resonate with them. And I think what you said about your mum as well, you know, the change in relationship when a man comes on the scene because she is trying to create a family environment for you. And so she's investing her time. But for you as a child, it feels really uncomfortable. What have I done wrong? Why aren't you spending the time with me? Because you don't really understand. And particularly if men lay down that rule, well, I want to see you, but I'm not ready to see your child. So in essence, you feel like you're being punished. You're being put to bed early again, when you've done nothing wrong. And I think that's very confusing, that messaging. And for your mum also, it's confusing because she's she, she understood physical violence. But what she probably didn't understand was the control and how control starts to creep in at even the beginning of a relationship where it can look like it's romance. It can look like attention. But actually, most oftentimes, it's about control. And I think that was a very smart observation on your behalf that because Andrew Hooper showed up in a different way. And I remember you describing him to me and saying things like, at first, he was lovely. He was intelligent. He was smart. He was charming. I remember you using the C word, charming, and instantly the red flag popped for me. And I wondered how much of that charm was about manipulation rather than anything else. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And it seemed that you picked these things up quite early on with him, but not always to people. And it sounds like your mum didn't. She saw him as being charming and she wanted to carry on having a relationship with him. And she wanted to please him, you said. Can you say a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. I mean... Me, I, I did not get on with him from the start, really. Um, and, you know, I was I was more difficult, you know, harder to win over than my mum was, really, um, because I was so sceptical, um, not just for my own um, safety, really, but, I, you know, I was so used to, you know, unfortunately, I never had the beauty of the parent-child relationship. Um, you know, my, you know, I spent most of the time being the parent, really, um, you know, and picking my mum up and, and making sure she was OK, um, because I was so used to living in that environment. Um, you know, it was all I'd ever known. I was born into it. So, um, you know, that was something, you know, it didn't really um, spark too many emotions with me. You know, I was quite capable of just picking my mum up and dealing with it. Um, whereas, you know, she would get really upset. And, you know, she had um, she had three miscarriages, unfortunately, very early on into their relationship um, because, you know, she was in her 40s um, and the first one was caused by, they went on holiday and she was sat on the plane too long and, um, you know, it caused, uh, caused an infection. Um, and you know, unfortunately she did lose it and she lost the, the next two. And every time he ran away and he blamed her, 
um and you know it was her fault and she was dirty and disgusting because she'd lost it um and because he ran away and he'd you know he'd be really hurt and upset about it that would just make her feel even more guilty because she was like, well, I've hurt him. I've upset him, you know, whereas um, that's just nature. Unfortunately, you know, these things happen. Um, and you know, they, they, they should have stuck together through it. Um, however, he left her, um, alone with no one. And I was, you know, myself and her friends, we were the only ones there to pick her up. And late at night when you're on your own and there's no one else in the house the, and your friends have gone to bed, who are you, who can you call on? Your child. Um, so, and I, I was left to pick up the pieces and I never, I just never gelled to him. I just really picked up a bad vibe from him. Um, and I think, unfortunately, well, I, I wouldn't really say unfortunately, but he knew he kind of sensed that I'd figured him out and I tried many times to tell my mum, I don't like him. There's something not right about him. Um, you know, I mean, I was, I was just as guilty as she was though for falling for his charm. I'm not going to deny that. There were men, you know, many times where I was like, Oh, he's great. He's great. But it would always boil back down to, do you know what? I, I don't really like him. Um, and I, it was, you know, we'd go out and we'd have great days out or I'd go out with him on his farm and I'd love it. But then when it came back to, um, you know, the weekend, for example, having Sunday dinner, we, you know, we'd go out on the farm in the morning when we came back in and we, when we were sat together, it just didn't work. There was just something not quite right. Um, and, you know, yeah, like, like I said to you before and, and you've mentioned it, it I, he was very charming and I 100% believe that that was just the act of manipulation um you know him waiting to to get her where he wanted her um and then slowly change uh you know his his friends called him lordy that's not a normal thing really to call your friend lordy um you know he had his own farm he drove a range rover he thought he was it um and he was uh, you know a lot more wealthy than his his friends and therefore he felt that he deserved the title of lordy um you know and well lordy or the lord um because he really did think he was lord of the manor um you know and that was another sort of big thing for me i was like well i don't understand why his friends look up to him so much um you know he isn't really anything special um but yeah i i didn't get on with him really at all and because he knew I'd sussed him out he didn't want really anything to do with me because he also knew that my mum valued my opinion very highly um and if I wasn't happy then she would have left so for him you know he had to try and isolate my you know me away from my mum really well my mum well my mum away from me um so that she'd be just all ears on him and not listen to to me and and anyone else around um and you know he'd always put it down to oh well she doesn't know me very well yet she's she's not gonna like me or because we in that period of time he never really let me spend too much time around him um so that my mum could say oh well you don't really know him yet um and then by the time we did end up spending more time together the damage was already done um you know she was already under his spell really and you know wrapped around his little finger he could do whatever he wanted um and nothing that I said or nothing that my nan and granddad said um would ever really be louder than his voice What did your nan and granddad think about him? Um, 
exactly the same as what I thought really they they were not a fan of him um you know they got married uh, four years into their relationship and my nan and granddad said to her don't marry him uh, you know we all sort of said the same um I I was hoping because I was I was controlled you know as much as my mum was um unfortunately but because I wasn't that immediate person I did have sort of uh, you know an outer aspect uh, outer perspective of it as well um so that was a big problem because I was in two minds constantly I was so torn um and it's very easy for someone to say well how did you feel about the situation well I don't really know because one half of me was telling me this is amazing it's brilliant I'm living on a farm now uh you know I, I love animals as you know I, I I'm in for I'm going into farming myself um so you know, I was I loved it and it was brilliant and I'd never lived in you know such a big house with the, with my dogs in the countryside you know doing something I enjoy um but then it was like well actually the family life isn't that great this isn't right we shouldn't be here we should be somewhere else so it was that constant battle in my head but you know I'd always try and um you know shut up the the realistic side you know with the with the fact that I could just go out to the fields it wouldn't matter what was going on at home. If something was going on, if there was an argument, I could just walk straight out the door, walk 100 yards, and I'd be just sitting in a field on my own. And I didn't have to listen to it. So therefore, I could ignore what was going on and therefore pacify um, the other half of me that was screaming out, get out, really. Um, and I think that is so common in sort of abusive relationships. You pacify the inner person going, get out, get out, get out. Yeah, I think that does happen a lot, the rationalisation and the minimisation of what's manageable and what's not, particularly if you can take yourself off outside and away from it. But I think it's really important what you said about your mum miscarrying three times, because miscarriage is just so emotionally distressing for a woman. And I mean, I'm pregnant now as we're recording this and, you know, it, it's... I was very aware of that. I was like, do I talk about miscarriages while she's pregnant? <laughs> yes, no, do, because it's a, it's a very important part of, of the story. And it tells me a lot about his callous disregard for your mum, that he made it about him. And it should have been about her because it is just so emotionally and physically and psychologically distressing so he made all of it about him and his drama when he should have been emotionally supporting your mum. Now, that speaks volumes to me about the health of the relationship, that he was emotionally unavailable when she needed him. And he almost blamed, well, you told me actually, he blamed her and would say things like she was disgusting when she was bleeding. So the language and how he treated your mum in those moments of how you describe it, really tell me a lot about him, that his psychopathology, it sounds like he was a narcissist and very self-centered and self-serving and egocentric. It's all about him. And of course, then you've got his friends calling him Lord and Lordy, which reinforces that even more. And he's used to getting his way. And it sounds to me like your mom, in a sense, was the people pleaser, unfortunately, who was trying to create a good relationship, but it was her who was always having to meet his needs. It wasn't the other way around. So again, that tells me about the health of the relationship and control issues. And I believe he was just in terms of physical descriptives, isn't, wasn't he six foot and 18, um, 18 stone? So he's a big guy. 
yeah he you know he was a massive guy um and that wasn't fat either that was muscle you know he played rugby from a very young age you know obviously like I said he was a farmer um you know so he was quite intimidating and there was no need for him to actually be physical um and you know as far as I'm aware I from what I witnessed over the years I he never laid a finger on my mum um however you know I I I have doubts in my mind here and there um however you know and I did ask my mum several times and um you know I could tell when my mum was being honest I could always tell when she was telling you know lying and trying to fob me off and when she was you know actually telling the truth and you know I do believe that he didn't hit her um you know there were times where I thought he did but you know um however you know when it comes to things like sex and things like that i'm 100 percent certain that i have with no doubt that he you know forced her into doing you know into having sex when she really didn't want to when she was tired um you know and i you know he was very intimidating in other ways he didn't have to be physical he didn't have to you know smack her or throw down the stairs or that that kind of behavior because his size was intimidating enough my mum was only five four five five so she was only small so that's quite a big difference and she was only you know 10 stone he was 18 stone there's a massive difference uh, you know in size so he didn't need to intimidate her in that way um, you know there were times where he he became physically intimidating when she sort of got a bit of confidence and would you know would would have a go back at him really and um, you know there was a time he like he punched the pillow you know just as she was lying in bed he punched the pillow right next to her head and that was that only happened probably once or twice um over the whole seven year relationship um but you know that that in itself is incredibly intimidating so that immediately would you know my mum would be very taken aback by that um and because she took the physical side of it so seriously um anything like that would be that to her would be major red flag whereas the coercion and all those little things would they might be like amber flags you know they weren't quite a big red flag screaming get out um you know they were sort of oh okay maybe maybe that's a bit odd but we'll deal with that um you know and and like I said she was very forgiving um you know always wanted to help people um and as you know that you know they always come back begging for forgiveness oh I'm sorry I didn't mean it I won't do it again um so whenever that would happen of course being my mum she said yeah okay that's fine you know and she'd always put her emotion um on the back burner and and like I said you know she wanted to make it work for, for me um really and we had a very serious conversation before they got married um and I said to her I said please don't ever put me through what I've been through again you know and there's there was an element of guilt for quite a a period of time after she died um surrounding that conversation because I said to her don't put me through it again you you either make it work or you don't get married you know because I can't I can't go through another divorce I just can't do that um I've had an you know I've I'd stopped seeing my dad in this period of time you know um which was really difficult it was a really big decision for me to make um and you know I'd already been through that physical relationship and there was a lot going on um so you know that was a that was a very serious conversation so when she died and um, it came out in court that she'd been she'd been sending messages to her friends saying it's fine I've only got to stay till George is 18 and she moves out then you know we'll just make it work till then then I can leave so for for myself that was a massive element of guilt there going 
was that because of that conversation you know if you know if i we hadn't had that conversation would she have stayed that long um you know and it, not even just that conversation but the fact that you know she wanted so desperately to make it work for my for me and to give me a good family you know a good stable family um because i used to get upset all the time seeing my friends families and how happy they all were um you know she just wanted to give me the same um and you know that there was that massive element of guilt that was that my fault and um, that she stayed that long um you know it was something i really had to come to terms with um and to you know sort of get my head around um after her death but um i mean i managed to get my head around it and you know unfortunately it's just one of those things no one preempted that what would happened you know what happened would have happened um but you know it's just uh hindsight's a wonderful thing let's put it that way it is. And you have to remember that you were a child in that conversation and nowhere in your wildest dreams would you imagine that this would end in murder. And you were saying things from the child perspective that for you, you can't go through another divorce again. And so please make sure this is the right decision, which sounds like a very sensible counsel to give, actually. And your mum was the adult making the decisions and for some of the, what she saw in him, it was the good stuff as well. And I think that's a very important point to make because abusers aren't abusive all of the time. And we do hear often the apologies that go in, as you said, of all the apology and the, the, the I, I will change, I will be better for you. But the problem is we don't often see the change behaviour after the apology. But your mum was making those decisions based on what she felt was right at the time and probably not in her wildest dreams did she imagine at that time that it would end in being stalked and being murdered. And oftentimes, George, I will say with all the families that I work with that have been bereaved because a man who was entitled decided to kill their loved one, families will say, well, we read about murders in the newspapers, but we never thought it would happen to us. So please don't feel guilt around what you said to your mum. And I mean that sincerely. No person genuinely thinks that a situation will end in murder. Certainly not when the, the red flags aren't all laid out, which it took some time in your mum's case. The red flags, when I look back at the case now, and when we've talked about it, we see them. But before she married him, she saw that as a solution to some of the problems. But unfortunately, what we do know is that the marriage isn't a solution to the problems, that oftentimes things get worse once the ring goes on the finger. And I know that from when we've had conversations, that's when things got worse. So perhaps tell us a little bit about what was happening in the relationship, what he was doing, because I think you very astutely said he wasn't violent. And therefore, mum didn't recognise the red flag. She saw amber flags. But when he did things like punching a pillow next to her, of course, he is exerting his physical presence. He is flexing to say, this is what I can do to you. Remember who's in power and who's got the control here. When he messes around with his guns, he's saying to her, remember, I'm in charge. I have the power and I have the control. And these things started to come out, didn't they? They started to play out once she was married. Paint the picture a little bit about what he was doing and, and what was going on. 
I mean, um, yeah, you're very right in what you say with the, the intimidation things. He didn't need to. That would that was a very rare thing that would happen. And it would be it would be when, uh, you know, when she was getting her confidence back. Oh, I can fight back a bit, um, you know, and oh, he's really not that that bad as I think he is, um, you know, and then bang, he would do something like that. And then it would be, whoa, OK, I yeah, no, I messed up. He, he really is in control. Um, but yeah, I mean. He was, first of all, he's really started just by isolating us. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, we live in a rural rural area as it is. And, uh, you know, I lived on a farm, so that's even more rural. Um, and, you know, this is something I, I talk about quite a lot with, uh, you know, rural abuse and urban abuse being so different. Um, my mum was, like I said at the start, very sociable, very bubbly, always, you know, always with people, very extroverted. Um, and then it just became more effort than it was worth to go out um and he would never this is the other thing as well because he never explicitly told her no she never again she never recognized it as being a big red flag um you know it was never you can't go out wearing that you can't go out full stop you know it was just he'd go in a mood he would sulk um you know he wouldn't his favorite thing was the silent treatment uh, he wouldn't speak to us for weeks, I mean, and I mean weeks, and you wouldn't know what you did because he wouldn't tell you what you'd done. Um, you'd just get a particularly a particular look, um, and you'd just know, oh, here we go again, um, you know, kind of thing. So my mum then stopped going out because it was more effort than it was worth to go out. So she invited her friends over to the house. Um, you know, we moved in with him. They were together four years when they got engaged. Um, then they were engaged a year before they got married. So we were we moved in when they got engaged. Um, so they'd, they'd already been together a couple of years at this point. Um, but because living separately, they were, mum was still able to do things like go out and stuff like that because he wasn't there all the time. Um, you know, he had a, a son of his own who's four years older than me. Um, so and who he had shared custody with his ex-wife. Um, so when he had his son, we wouldn't really see him. Um, then when when he didn't have a son, we would see him. Um, so, yeah, so mum would invite people over to the farm. Um, and then he would just humiliate us in front of those people, um, you know, or he'd just, he'd be moody in front of them, or he'd just be, you know, rude, or he'd just be, Re, uh, you know, or he'd have conversations that just weren't suitable for that that time, um, and he'd be, be very crass about things, and you know, just just not appropriate behaviour when behaviour when you've got guests over, um, you know, particularly when, especially in the middle of the day as well, and you know, um, when when you when it's late at night and you've had like a dinner party and you've all had a few drinks, that and that behaviour comes out, it's slightly different, you know that topic, different topics of conversation um, between adults. But in the middle of the day, when someone's just come around for lunch and you know there's no alcohol consumed and there's children there, there's certain topics you don't discuss, um, you know. But he would go out of his way to make people uncomfortable, so they never wanted to come again, um, and it was that isolation there. And then that was it. Once my mum thought, you know what? It's pointless having people over. So I can't go out. I can't have people over. Oh, well, I just won't see people. Um, you know, and she worked long hours too. She used to finish work at, you know, six or or after six um, in the evening. So it was quite a long day. Um, so by the time she got home as well, we had, she had a massive farmhouse to clean, um, family of four to feed, who, because he wouldn't do any housework. He was very much a believer of, I'm the man, I go to work, I get the money, 
the woman comes home, cooks and cleans. And there were many conversations about who worked the hardest, which is a daft conversation to have anyway. Um, but he'd, you know, it wouldn't even start off as, oh, I, I work harder than you. My mum would make a comment, say, in the pub, um, and he'd just turn around and come back with some snide remark about how actually she doesn't work hard or, yeah, well, I work seven days a week was his favourite thing. However, he was, uh, you know, an arable and beef farmer and, and we had sheep as well later on, but um, particularly, the, the, there's one example I can think of, and particularly at this time, um, you know, over winter... He just had, you know, the sheep were being managed by our shepherd, so he wasn't involved. He had some beef cattle, and the Arab, there was nothing to do with the arable because it's just growing, and there's nothing to do with the beef. All you have to do is go outside. So he had to walk a hundred yards to the to the lodal, put some nuts in the lodal, but in the bucket, and then just go and tip them in the shed. Then he'd go back inside all day. And then he'd say, "Yeah, well, I work seven days a week. Yeah, well, you might have to do that seven days a week, but." that's only 10 minutes out of those seven days. You know, that's not eight, nine, 10 hours out of those seven days. Like, you know, my mum was working five days a week, but doing, uh, you know, nine till six or 6.30 in the evening. So that's quite a long day, especially compared to what he was doing. In summer, yes, he'd be working 12, 13, 14 hour days trying to get the harvest in. Um, you know, but over winter, there was, you know, that was, it's a very seasonal job if you work in arable or something like that. Um, so yeah, there was always that debate and he just used to make my mum feel about, you know, this big and it was very much, she'd come home and clean. And even if she phoned him and said, can you just peel some spuds for me? No. Or he'd do it and leave a mess everywhere for her. Um, even something as simple as putting a plate in the dishwasher, he wouldn't do it. He'd leave it on the side. So I think what you're describing is he had a very clear mindset about a woman's job and role and a man's job and role. And it sounds like he was a misogynist to me, the fact that your mom is doing so much. She was working hard, but she was also having to manage the house, do all the cleaning, look after the children. You know, these are huge, huge jobs, keeping the house in a way that you want to live and also looking after your children and cooking after working a long day. But what he would say would devalue her and try and invalidate her and make her feel small and belittle her and belittle her worth. Now, as you know, Georgia, that's, you know, the drip, drip, drip of that, when you're hearing it all the time, it really has an impact on your self-esteem and your confidence and your agency and your autonomy because you start to doubt yourself. If this is how the person who loves you views you, and it is, it's insidious, this drip, drip, drip behavior. And it sounds like she was doing her best in every way, but he was intent on belittling her and making her feel undervalued, which must have been very difficult for you to listen to as well, because it's the impact on the children too, hearing these things being said for the next generation of what does that mean for your worth as a young girl growing up into a woman? And what does that mean for his son hearing that the next generation of a boy's value is more important than a girl's and a woman's, the man is much more important. So these things are just so important because it's not just about the murder in a vacuum. It's about the lead up of everything that was going on, this drip, drip, drip about control and how he controlled her. And it's all through the psychological, the emotional, the coercive the physical when it's needed, right? The physical and sexual when it's needed to reinforce. 
But it sounds to me like there was an awful lot going on prior to him taking that decision to kill her and unfortunately kill her in front of you, which, you know, when I heard you describe everything that happened, I just felt so angry. I felt so angry that he felt entitled enough to take your mother's life in such a brutal way in front of her daughter. I'm going to pause here and let you reflect and take in part one of this searingly honest conversation about events leading up to Cheryl's murder. Murder doesn't happen in a vacuum, and we're painstakingly going through beat by beat what happened to ensure people understand the warning signs. Unfortunately, Cheryl's case is not an anomaly, neither is it a rare event. Femicide is currently at an all-time high. A woman is murdered by a man every three days in the UK. A woman is murdered by her current or former male partner every four days. Yet despite this, on Thursday the 15th of April, government decided to vote against our amendment in the domestic abuse bill for serial domestic abusers and stalkers to be included on the same database as sex offenders and terrorists. Now, they stated that adding a new category of serial perpetrators to existing arrangements would add, in inverted commas, complexity to the existing system. Well, we believe that complexity is needed. Plus, it will clarify that serial domestic abusers and stalkers must be flagged and they must be included on the same database as sex offenders and terrorists because they're so dangerous and they should be managed by the multi-agency public protection arrangements. We believe that that will ensure that those perpetrators are held responsible and accountable for their actions for the first time. And we don't need more guidance, which is what they're proposing. We know more pieces of paper will change nothing. Now we're going to continue to fight for this change. We know that this needs to happen to save lives and we're going to get louder to ensure women and children matter and that they hear our voices loud and clear. So please support us by sharing this really important interview with others and in doing so, amplifying Georgia's voice. You can help by writing to your Member of Parliament if you're in the United Kingdom and ask them to support our campaign. You can also sign the petition, which is in the show notes. And please be an upstander and take action and share this on social media because women's lives really depend on it. So be sure to join me back in the intelligence cell for the second part of this really important interview with Georgia. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. 
Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.